Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. The writer-director Rob Zombie is about to complete his trilogy of Firefly movies, with the release of Three from Hell later this fall. And, in one of the first bits of publicity for the movie, I just saw, on Instagram, two of the stars sitting in makeup chairs, getting ready for a photo shoot or a convention appearance or both. And the two stars are Bill Mosley and Sid Haig, the latter of which, sitting slumped in a clown costume, looks really fucking old. Which isn't to say that he looks bad. He looks no older or younger than his 79 years. I guess his age is just striking because, even though he's kept busy, the last time I saw him on screen was in 2005's The Devil's Rejects, the middle installment of the Firefly trilogy that's going to get its conclusion this fall, where he played the now infamous Captain Spaulding, a middle-of-nowhere gas station owner who dresses as a clown to attract road travelers to his... It's a strange premise. Rob Zombie's trilogy, like lots of sprawling, great stories, doesn't really lend well to summarization. You kind of just have to go see the movies. And Haig, the semi-subject of today's episode, is is great in the role. He's menacing, funny, monstrous, and, and weirdly paternal and warm at times. I think it was Rob Zombie who said in an interview that Sid Haig, an iconic figure in B and Grindhouse movie fan culture, was pretty much retired from acting when he agreed to star in the trilogy's first installment, House of a Thousand Corpses. Haig told him that the reason for his retirement is that he was sick of being cast over and over as characters that had names like Hoodlum or Biker Number 3. But so Zombie gets him to play Captain Spaulding in 2003, and to do it again in 2005, and the role becomes iconic, at least among horror fans. It becomes the basis for Halloween masks and action figures and t-shirts, costumes. It's a great role for Haig, but it's also very much inspired by the sorts of grindhouse movies from which it seems he was trying to escape. I suspect, though, that Sid Haig loves the role that Rob Zombie wrote for him. And maybe that's presumptuous of me. I only say it because you can clearly tell when, you know, Christopher Lee, for instance, is miserably uninterested in playing Dracula for the fourth or seventh time. And Bruce Willis is another figure whose, you know, consummate disinterest in seemingly every role he plays just kind of oozes off the screen. There's so much nuance and so much zeal in Sid Haig's performance as Captain Spaulding, it just looks like he would need to love it. Like, there's no way he could be playing the role this well if he didn't kind of believe in it. But I've been wondering, as I've been seeing the marketing for Three From Hell ramp up, does Sid Haig feel at all conflicted to find that, as an octogenarian, he didn't get out of the exploitation genre? It's a role whose allure is targeted toward a much younger demographic. Does he feel at all estranged from his peers to be playing this character that's probably only going to be appreciated by moviegoers who are way, way younger than him? Because one, one tends to think of actors his age taking austere roles, like Christopher Plummer does, or Eli Wallach did up until, you know, the end of his life, or Bruce Dern is doing now. The role of Captain Spaulding, to put it mildly, is not one of those roles. I have a funky fresh. Yeah, my, I, my roommate, Laz, saw Avengers Endgame last weekend, and he can't fucking stop talking about it. Waffle! Endgame! I said, I think, that the guy who's always interested in the condition of the world and changing it either has no problems of his own or refuses to face them. In college, I worked at a tutoring center where I was also a student. 
We got paid for working there, but we also had to take lectures twice a week, where we basically just sat in a circle, I think there was 12 or 14 of us, and we talked about our experiences with students from that week, and strategies of tutoring that we were trying out, and talking about how we could improve. Part of our curriculum was to study the academic papers that were being released from a national conference of writing tutors. A regular at these conferences was a guy named Peter Elbow. Elbow wrote what amounted to tutoring theory, if I remember correctly. Stuff about like the verbal and nonverbal rhetoric that a tutor should use with a student so as to make the student as comfortable as possible so that, you know, they could do a better job, whatever. It's the kind of thing that sounds really corny when you hear about it, but when you read the actual work, I remember it being kind of revelatory, where he's invoking psychology and he's talking about how like sitting with your knees spaced apart a few inches like influences the behavior of the person across from you. It was really incisive shit and I definitely learned a lot. Anyway, my boss would come back from these conferences and she would speak of Peter Elbow like he was a fucking rock star. Every Everybody at these conferences made concessions for Peter Elbow. Peter Elbow got his breakfast before everyone else. Peter Elbow rode in the service elevator. Apparently Peter Elbow had a fucked up back, and so in the middle of a lecture he would get up out of his chair and lay down flat on the carpeted ballroom floor, and he'd lace his fingers over his belly, and he'd face the ceiling, and, far as anyone could tell, he would just continue listening. But nobody would say anything, my boss observed in a reverential whisper, shrugging with a fangirl's glee, because he's Peter Elbow, a rock star. But I used to wonder then, and I'm wondering about it now, did Peter Elbow have dreams of being recognized for work that he was doing outside of writing theory for college-level writing tutors? Let's say the answer is yes, hypothetically. Let's say that he wanted to be a poet or a novelist or a historian, something a little more glamorous. Not, it's not necessarily the case, but just for the sake of where we're heading, let's say that he wanted to be something larger. But let's say, hypothetically, that after so many years and so much effort in pursuit of that first field, the poetry or history or whatever, his passion field, he finds himself nowhere close to achieving his ultimate dream, and yet, almost by happenstance, finds himself at the peak of a totally different field, as close to a writing tutor icon as ever a man did get. Peter Elbow finds himself doing work that's advancing his field. Granted, that field is niche beyond niche, but still, he's making a difference. Is the hypothetical Peter Elbow happy with this? Does it feel like he's settled for this job, or, or has his focus shifted into a sincerely reverential commitment to this field? Only Peter Elbow could say, but I don't suppose he would. You know something that I think that there was just as much fucking going on then as now. Next time I'm gonna go hook up with a chick, I'm just gonna look at her and I'm gonna go, baby, end game. An academic was recently profiled for Humans of New York, which is an Instagram account where a photographer takes these beautiful, spontaneous portrait shots of random New Yorkers and quotes them for about a paragraph, talking about some aspect of their lives. The academic, featured in the post, talked about how he had dreamed for the longest time that he would be the historian who toils away in the bowels of a library somewhere and he finds that one stone that hasn't been turned over on a particular subject, the loose, straggling detail that influences everyone's understanding of that subject. But, he concedes, it hasn't happened for him after all these years. His research, he suggests, has been solid and it's generated some good writing, but nothing revelatory. This academic said that he'd spent a long time lamenting this until a younger researcher told him one day about how valuable his work had been for her work, that he had provided some critical tools for her to, you know, reach her conclusions. Suddenly, the academic was looking at his career in a new light. It's not about being the academic, it's about being helpful to the academics coming up after you. 
It's about being a productive and sturdy link in the eternal chain of successors. It's about giving what you have to give and trying to enjoy yourself in the process. I'm not sure how Sid Haig feels about his career up to this point, but I'd like to think that what he once regarded as a lifetime's imprisonment in the world of grindhouse cinema, if indeed I'm remembering this correctly, looks more to him now, at 80, like a lifetime's contribution to that cinema. That even when he himself is gone from this place, there will be miles of film with his face on it, his energy, a presence that's proven visceral and vital and dedicated and spry, influential to the people who were looking and who cared to appreciate it. I certainly belong to a fandom of horror movie nerds for whom he's as influential a star as any other, the Peter Elbow of our field, a fucking rock star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how does anybody give a fuck about what's happening right now when Endgame is like fucking a reality, man? Endgame. One of Henry Miller's lesser-known books is a weird, wonderful travelogue of his trip to Greece in 1939. It's called The Colossus of Marusi. At one point, to get out of what he describes as the oppressive Grecian sun, Miller and his friend duck into a cafe. Miller says in the prose, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, I think I read somewhere that warm liquids help you to cool off better than cold ones, don't you know? So I ordered a cup of very hot tea. That's my Henry Miller impression. I think it's pretty good. As a matter of fact, let me play a quick clip of Henry Miller talking. This is from a 1981 documentary called Reds. We all have problems. You can't escape having problems, don't you know? But to take on the problem of all humanity, to save all humanity, my God, that was too big even for Jesus Christ. Don't you know he got himself crucified? I think I do a pretty good job. Anyway, so Henry Miller's in Greece, and he's hot, and he orders a warm beverage to help him cool off. Earlier this week, I got breakfast with my dad, and halfway into his cup of coffee, he starts sweating, profusely, and he says to me, I don't know what it is about the coffee here, but this happens every time I get so sweaty. And, remembering Miller, I said to him, I read somewhere that warm liquids help you cool off better than cold ones, don't you know? He blinked at me. Alex, where'd you hear that? I told him I read it in a book by Henry Miller. My dad bounced an eyebrow and raised a hand for the check. Maybe, he said, you should read someone else. Baby, end game. Having recently embraced black beans as a staple of my daily diet, more often purchased under the label of frijoles negro, I've been giving thought, of late, to the ditty about beans that one often hears recited among school children, the one that refers not so much to the taste and texture of my frijoles, but focuses, rather, on their cardiovascular benefits, which I understand to be many, and also, more interestingly, on the flatulence said to result from their consumption. And, as a recently avid consumer of beans, often in recklessly huge quantities that far outweigh the complementary carbohydrate, I have this to say on the matter of flatulence. The rumors are true.
You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.